Welcome back to another amazing episode of Stargazer. Today, I am so excited to have my absolute favorite YouTube astrologer, Lori Lothian. Thank you so much for being here. How are you today? Oh, I am so glad to be here, and I'm doing great. As we talked about in the green room, so to speak, I just got back from a lovely day at the beach. So I'm, wel I'm welcoming and scintillating conversation with uh, you, because you're very, very, very brilliant at this stuff. Oh my gosh, I can't. See, I was uh, shocked to find out that, or I should say I was starstruck, because I asked you to come on my show, and you were like, I know who you are. And I was like, so excited, because I never expected that, because I've been following you for, oh my goodness, maybe a year. It hasn't been like a ton of time. But once I found your YouTube channel, Lunatic Astrology, everyone on YouTube, I just loved how many threads you were weaving together and also how prolific you are and how dense your videos are. They are dense. They are so complex and that you are probably the most prolific astrologer that I can think of just in terms of how much content you're putting out, how thorough it is, how thoughtful it is. And what I love about your work is that you are weaving many schools of thought together and you have a real grounding in like the Hellenistic sort of traditional forms, which I really like, but you also have, you have many elements and layers that you weave in that I'm not even that adept at or that up on. So I learn a lot from you and I really love your content. Thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you. You know, I, I want to say that uh, two things. I, I said, I, I think I started tracking you way back in the day with your gorgeous newsletters, uh, 2019. And I think I took one of your Mercury uh, web webinars, and you're very good at that as well. This is way back. So I knew about you for a while. But also, so it's really kind of cool that we found each other here. But you know, one of the things you mentioned right now is a real passion to teach people astrology. So when I'm on my YouTube channel, I'm not just dispensing vague ideas or even specific ideas without sharing why I'm saying that. And my goal really is that cliche, you know, you know, teach a man to fish, right? I can give them you I can give people fish and fishes and fishes, but teach you to fish and you're off to the races. So a lot of my content is also very educational on purpose. You know, I'm trying to share a learning at the same time, a teaching and a learning at the same time I'm giving predictive quality information the best I can. Yes. And for me, I really appreciate that because I also love to teach astrology. And so what you do is stimulating for me. I really get a lot out of it. I appreciate it so much. And also, you know, the the um the style that you have of prediction, I find very stimulating without feeling like you are trying to over determine or or push me into believing that I am now fated to experience a certain thing, which I find very troubling in the world of astrology. The, the overemphasis on um, prediction that is heavy-handed. Mm, yeah, I, that's a trap of Hellenistic astrology in particular or traditional astrology because it is very predictive and it is very accurate and like uh, unfortunately just like Vedic astrology or Jyotish is very accurate for very many of the same reasons and one of them is the use of time lord tools to say weighting a planet rather than depending on transits alone and those time lord tools are very accurate and so I'm always torn myself between it mostly with clients because you can't really be accurate Aries Aries rising you know that's a bell curve that's a general central tendency will fit a lot of people and there's going to be always the outliers on that bell curve so in astrology on youtube i'm always 
telling people literally this is a bell curve it may not apply to you you have an individual chart it's unique it's like your you know your own signature and therefore some of this stuff will or will not apply but it is tricky because in real like real life astrology with you know five thousand plus clients over the last few years I always ask, is it okay if I tell you something that may be difficult? I have some seeing something here. So I ask for permission for predictive. Everyone loves the good stuff, right, Rachel? It's like, oh my God, you're going to win the lottery or you're going to get married to your soulmate or I can see, you know, in the near future, like a business bonanza. But you can also see predictively the difficult challenges as a motorcycle guns it out there. And, and like, would it be better to know in advance? So, and I find the, one of the most tricky ones for me is when I can see particular illnesses or challenges for a parent yeah. or a pet. So I'm always asking in advance and I'm usually getting a permission granted. And then I get refeedback, you know, over the years. Wow, I'm so glad I had that time to prepare for my mom's passing. It made such a difference in my life. Because as you see, your mom and your dad, the moon and the sun in your chart, for example, they have their own stories. Your parents have their own lives. You can't possibly change their their, their story. Yeah. And so astrology can be really useful for preparing the way for the difficult circumstances as much as anticipating uh, and, and leaning into hope yeah. for the positive circumstances. And lastly, because I talk a lot, hope. Mm-hmm. The main thing I hear from clients when I'm on, you know, in feedback mode, or I hear back is that astrology brings hope to their lives. You know, there's something about yearning to find a clear navigational mm, profit, or that's not the right word. It's like a guide on a trail. Like if you're going on a hike in the mountains and you want to know, avoid the left turn quicksand, go right, you know, beautiful meadow. That's the best we can do with our our clients, but it's often a a theme of hope that keeps coming up over and over. People are looking for some hope in their lives. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, You know, I think it's interesting that, well, first of all, it's, it requires a tremendous amount of ethics and as astrologers, at least in, you know, our, in the Northern, well, North America, you're in Canada, I'm in California, but we don't have a tradition of astrology schools, universities. We don't have a legitimate scene that has a lot of credentials. Um, We don't have boards that we have to answer to, to keep our ethics up, to keep our training up. So to have the ethics that you have is just coming straight from your heart. And I think that's really, really important. Asking clients whether they want to hear something like that or not is so, so important because even though you're telling them about the upcoming weather mm-hmm. and that they may want to look out for, it's still their own free will, whether or not they want that information or not. And mm-hmm. I think that that's really, really important. Like there is an example of free will woven together with something that we could call destiny or perhaps fate, Mm -hmm. but actually exercising your free will in the first place as to whether or not you actually want that information ahead of time. That's. Yeah. That's the very first step, but here's the thing with fate and free will. So we're going to talk about a couple of weird things and I'm just going to mention them in passing. I don't want to spend much time there. Um, in my thirties, I was a full-time psychic. Uh, I had clients around the world, mostly in the United States where I lived at the time. And, um, I mean, I just told them the future without tarot cards, astrology wheels. I've been doing astrology since I was in my twenties. I got 
thrust into the learning to for Berkeley publishing sunsigned paperbacks when I lived in New York City in my 20s because the astrologer died. <laughs> it's a long oh. story. And they had to fill in a bunch of fast, fast and dirty writers. And so I was one of those. And so that's how I got into astrology in my 20s. But it was in my 30s that I was doing the full-time psychic clairvoyant work for people. Mm-hmm. And um, I was even doing remote viewing with some of the Project Stargate Fallout folks. And there was a BBC documentary with me accurately remote viewing the contents of an envelope in a double blind way. So I learned in my 30s that you can see the future. That's what this whole point is. So how great I am as a psychic. I learned that the future is determinable or you can visualize or understand or see or hear or know the future. So that's right away, fate and free will. How can I know the future? It means the future is either set or it's not set. You know what I mean? So then if it's set, is free will truly free will about the events that will transpire? Or is it how we choose to respond to the events that will transpire? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I mean, that's like such a it's such a deep theological question. And that's how I really look at it. Um, but I just really want to comment on a synchronicity really quick. I was just reading about Project Stargate like last night. Oh, and- wow. That is the first time I ever heard the the term. I knew about the remote viewing research that was going on at Stanford because um, one of my most important teachers, uh, I used to take Qigong at this place called the Taoist Institute. And it's there's so many threads that weave there. But essentially, there was this place in North Hollywood um, that was a martial arts studio. Now, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, he started attending class so he could take Kung Fu and Tai Chi and Qigong. And he was going there for about, I think, a year. Um, When I finally, you know, I was giving him his space. He had his like his man place, but I really wanted to learn Qigong. And so after he'd been going for about a year, I said, you know, would you mind if I joined the Qigong class? And he was totally cool with that. So I joined this place called the Taoist Institute in North Hollywood, which was run by the most brilliant and eccentric man with such a strange lineage because he was he was an african american the very first that was initiated into a taoist lineage mm. that was 5000 years old <laughs> um and the reason why that happened is because of the communist revolution in china and so that temple that had actually held that lineage for so many centuries was burned to the ground and the grand master a very very old man was thrown in prison and so some of the younger teachers escaped fortunately and they came to california which is you know there's a lot of chinese people in california from san francisco to la Mm -hmm. and so many of them ended up in la and they opened up schools and they were teaching at first in the 1960s they were just teaching chinese because they were very very nationalistic and also for them it was something that represented just keeping the wisdom keeping the teachings within the community but they were losing losing people they could not really get it to grow the american chinese were just not keeping up the schools and so there was a very strange eccentric man named shirke lu who decided to open up his schools against all teachings that he was raised with to Americans of all races. And so our teacher was a 16-year-old who was living in South Central, and he had a lot of issues with people trying to kick his ass. He was living in a kind of dangerous place, and he really wanted to learn martial arts. And so he was 
accepted into this school and he was initiated into this ancient lineage of Taoist internal alchemy and martial arts. Um, so he ended up being our teacher, which was just such a strange, strange experience because when we first entered that place, we had no idea the the wealth of information that we were going to be given, the, the depth that we were going to be given. And he was not just a Taoist priest and initiated into this lineage, but he was also a remote viewer, which is interesting. So he was super psychic and did all kinds of work like this, a lot of shamanic work. And it was there that I really developed a tremendous amount. And just by practicing Qigong, uh, doing energy work for the first time, I really began to open up. And that's when astrology really came alive for me. And this is when I was in my, it was before my Saturn return. So I'm like 26, 27. Mm. And astrology is just really starting to flow for me. And it's really making sense finally. And I actually learned that the over stimulation that astrology was giving me intellectually it was getting all stuck in my head it was actually causing energetic problems like I was getting all this jaw tension neck pain a lot of issues because I was getting everything so this all this information all these downloads I was trying to intellectualize because that was how I was conditioned and Qigong really helped me to start like moving the energy and opening up to other levels of sentience which completely changed my relationship to hermeticism and astrology and everything else. Um, and then one day when I was 29, this guy named Austin Kopic walked into the Taoist Institute to start training. And oh, I, I love, I love Austin's stuff. I, he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I'm like, oh my God, I know who this is. Why is this major astrologer walking into the Taoist Institute? So he had just happened to move to LA recently and his friend from way back in the day told him, if you're going to move to LA, you have to enroll at the Taoist Institute. So, so I was able to actually realize, I took it as a very major cue that I am actually being called to take this stuff seriously. Like you actually, you're hanging out with Austin Kopic now. Maybe you're supposed to take your astrology more seriously. And so it was him that invited me to the ISAR to give a talk, which was very cool. That was really oh, nice. Was that your like young astrologer talk? Okay. When you first started out. Yeah. I heard about that on your podcast. When I first started out, which was an amazing experience. Yeah. However, it was also the election year, you know, and I know you're familiar with the story, but the election year. So this was like the most amazing thing to witness because there were all of these different medieval techniques, all of these different, like deeply esoteric, strange systems for calculating and predicting. And um, the idea of the conference was that there was a lot of things going on, but the core theme of the conference was that all of these great minds are going to get together and they're going to predict who the president's going to be, which is just classic. You know, that's and that was the, that was a Trump Hillary election. That was the Trump Hillary election. Right. And at this point, I'm like, I don't really have any access to all of these very esoteric techniques. I had no idea what many of them were talking about, to be perfectly honest. The only mm -hmm. thing that I really could do at the time was just look at Hillary's chart, Trump's chart. And I was like, his chart looks uh, stronger. That's the only, it was just an intuition. I'm like, it just looks stronger. Mm -hmm. They all concluded that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And I wasn't sure how I felt about the prediction. I was just neutral. I just, you know, I just observed and I was like, okay, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens, you know, but I, I think I had an inclination that they probably knew, 
You know, I felt like mm-hmm. they probably know what they're talking about. They used Venus star points. They did all of these things and they all agreed. Wow. And it was published in the Guardian as yeah. an official and official prediction. And that's, obviously, yeah, it's a massive fail, massive fail. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Here's the thing. I think that's we're coming down to a deeper point here because I did pre- I did know and predict he'd win and then lose in that order, uh, those two elections. But uh, sometimes it's like you can't see the forest for the trees and you get caught up in the technique. And there are simpler techniques, by the way, than you know having to use you know distributions through the bounds. You could see simply the strength of two people's charts, like say Biden versus yeah. Trump, and who had the weaker time lords, were, were their time lords in debility, what was their relationship to the prevailing time lords. Yeah. But you know, with Trump, just a sidebar, because I'm going to go to the deeper point. The sidebar, he's born with the ascendant on Regulus, little, little king, born to rule all fame, power, and glory, but also fall from power. Both wow. that Regulus star, point, star on his ascendant and for the success and the fail of his two elections is also important. Um, it's a strong position for winning as becoming the king, basically. Yeah. Second of all, though, the deeper thing, the deeper thing is where you were going with the Qigong. You know, astrology is data. It's a lot of data. And that's that can't see the forest for the trees problem with a lot of astrologers, especially new astrologers. And when you become proficient at astrology, it's not because you're your data from Star Trek or Spock. It's not because you mastered your mind. It's because you've entered into the realm of the intuitive within yourself and you're allowing yourself to see what needs to be seen in the chart because you could see everything and go nowhere. You, You have to it's like almost like, do you remember those magic eye books that they had years ago? They probably still have them where you have to soft gaze at the picture and out comes a three-dimensional image. Yep, of course. That's of course. what a good a reading from a good astrologer should be like. They have so much data they can use, so many tools they can use, and yet they have to allow that thing that rises up from the chart. And usually it's the stuff that the client, even if they don't know it, need to know. You know what I mean? They, I want to know all about my career. And I'm like, rising up here is a, is a marriage problem. <laughs> you know? Let's go there first, because you won't care about your career if this marriage thing is in your way. And, and, and the Qigong for you sounds to me like it just allowed you to open up your uh, extrasensory energy fields, as will any spiritual practice. Yes, 100%. So yeah, thank you for that perspective on, on all of it. But specifically the the way that you can get really stuck or lost in all the data because that's exactly what I witnessed and I I recognized that it was happening it really seemed like a lot of grasping it really seemed like a lot of kind of delusional grasping because mm-hmm. I was just I was just listening I wasn't saying anything I was just there to listen and learn and I also took note of course um I, I was quite aware. I mean, this is California and there is a bias. That's what they wanted to oh, see. Oh, you, you just read my mind. I love us together. I was going to say it's confirmation bias. And I, I wrote it down on my notepad and you go, it's a bias. Yeah, it's confirmation yeah. bias. They're seeing what they want to see in the chart. Yeah. And so I, I took that as a really great lesson, like just a great lesson for me as a student. Like if you can't get to some kind of neutral place, where you don't really, really want to see this versus that, um, then don't don't even try. Like, don't try to predict. You might as well just flip a coin at that point. You know, <laughs> like yeah, that's, well. 
Uh, why do you think tarot readers don't do their own tarot for their own life? You know, they know they can't find the neutral place and it's like almost impossible to be your own best, you know, seer, psychic or scryer because yeah. you're always wishing for the best and avoiding the most difficult stuff in our own lives unless we're not human. So I always, I do have other people help me as a, as a reader to see myself in a you know, more clear light. Um, but there's also the other thing we were just mentioning earlier, the fate, back to the fundamental fate and free will conundrum, which is beleaguering me. Because um, the more readings I've done with clients, the more I begin to question the idea of carte blanche free will. Like, you know, what do you know, the Esther Hicks material, um, get your vibrational set point right, um, everything will work out, uh, you know, vision boards, mantras, affirmation statements, all of the new age stuff. Um, I think that's not how it works. I really think that the agency that we are expecting to experience isn't coming from, let's call it the little Rachel and the little Lori. It's coming from the vastness of our soul. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that really got me down the rabbit hole of questioning the degree of free will um, has been the use of the minor asteroids, which I have a great story for that. I mean, how I got into it. I was at, before the pandemic in 2019, I went to... Um, oh my god which conference was ncgr conference in baltimore for astrology and i was just participating i wasn't like talking or anything but i went into uh, alex miller's room on a breakout you know like you got to pick your little room i thought oh this looks interesting he's got alex miller is mr astrology for asteroids go check his website he's amazing alex miller was talking and he gave such an incredibly good presentation that people in the audience and this is a small little room so all like 40 of us were going <gasps> like, oh, ah, you know, we were doing that kind of like, wow. And after that, I couldn't stop. I went down the asteroid rabbit hole as an astrologer and never looked back. And it wasn't like I'd never dabbled in asteroids. I just became acutely aware besides the, you know, Ceres and, you know, Juno and all of, and Athena, Pallas Athene, that these were fine. I'd always use those. It was the idea that there are 24,000 named asteroids in the asteroid belt to date, named by astronomers, a lot of them amateur. The asteroid belt is what I call the devil's devil is in the details of astrology and it's like these little you can find the name of your husband the name of your children and you'll see like oh my god my husband is on my son you know or my child is on my ascendant they're not going to be just floating randomly they're going to be connected to something significant but it was with clients in practice that i started to really really look at this i got like a little red pill red pilled with the asteroids so i'm going to give you some fun stories from clients i've had permission to tell these stories before and they're just like they bedazzle the mind all right okay so number one here's this is my, one of my favorites i have a client who channels david bowie I was channels elvis presley too but she's a channeler so she cha channels the dead famous people and she her name is gia prism check her website out everyone listening you'll love her stuff and uh, she came to me for a reading out of the random blue and i said what do you do for a living i channeled david bowie or okay let's see if david bowie is an asteroid or bowie or david or anything like it go figure someone named an asteroid david bowie Mm -hmm. So, Rachel, where would you imagine the David Bowie would sit in the chart of someone whose profession is to channel this this archetypal consciousness or this dead person? Take it as you might, at whichever way the audience likes to consider it. I would imagine that it is close to the midheaven. It's on the midheaven within three degrees. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so it goes on. I have a client who uh, works with Ken Wilber of the Integral Institute and is basically in the top tier, like in the right hand man zone, right? Like, 
in the top four people around Ken Wilbur. The asteroid Wilbur is within three degrees of his midheaven. Mm-hmm. I have clients who are sommeliers. I have two of them. Bacchus, the god of wine, and, and or Dionysius are on their midheaven. Dionysius and Bacchus are both the gods of the cultivated grape, fermented grape. Now, you can't tell a child. Okay, and I have an actress, for example, who's writing a screenplay, and it's based on an historical character from the 1800s. The name of the character is on her ascendant. The first name of the character is on her ascendant. The last name is exactly on her descendant. So then you can't tell a kid, oh, you know, you're going to be a sommelier maybe because Dionysus is conjunct your midheaven. I wouldn't like look at a 10-year-old and suggest that, but I wouldn't know to look. And that's the problem with the asteroids. It is the devil is in the details. But with 24,000 asteroids, you only know about them in hindsight. You go looking for them. Yeah, for sure. But that doesn't that bring you fate and free will, like right up the, like, you know, what the hell? <laughs> Um, it's really like, it's, it's getting so it's zooming in so deep, like almost like a microscopic level of detail that you're able to see. And I'm trying to think of like a metaphor that we could think about to like, because it's still, it's still so important to interpret, uh, correctly. And you're saying that this is only hindsight anyway. It's only hindsight. It's almost like. It's just like a flash of the original hermetic conception of reality, which is that we use astrology as a reflection of what we actually are. You know, we are like a mirror of the divine. There is this divine order or this divine mind as they conceived of it, which is really how I see reality. I really can't help it. I mean, that's where I'm coming from. I was. I was raised Christian, so I was always raised with a sense that there is God, there is divine, there is a creator. Mm-hmm. And then when I got really deep into hermeticism, I looked at it through that lens as well, which doesn't actually disagree. You know, there are obviously theological differences, but it essentially the essential core is that there is this divine mind. There's mm-hmm. there's God's will. Mm-hmm. So if you believe that there is no free will, you would still believe that there is, there's God's will that you have agency about aligning with or not. That's sort of like the simplest way to look at it. And you can see from the perspective of astrology, it's supposed to be a divine science, meaning that you're looking at a language with which to interpret your particular role or your particular essence or your particular part to play in that divine mind or that that divine will Mm. it's amazing to me that if you zoom in that deeply you can see all of those details yeah the threads have been like already written and i kind of like yeah go ahead no i love that yeah no you keep going finish a sentence at love i'm I'm tracking you yeah in a certain way like you know we and and that might be oh no i have because I love that you brought up Abraham Hicks because that that is the ultimate free will. There's nothing but free will. I create my own reality. Everything is me, which is, I think, extremely uh, solipsistic and, and psychologically unhealthy. Um, when we have something like genetic code, which is not, this is not metaphysical. You know, let's just like pretend like we read genetic code. Let's say we're in a, a future where we can look at somebody's DNA, we can look at their genetic code and we start to interpret. Mm-hmm. 
there's a quality to that that is it's going to be very much like looking at the asteroids like we're looking in really deep very detailed information about the type of intelligences that you excel at the type of health that you have the weaknesses and the strengths we're looking at a lot of little details about what you what is written in you and also what you've inherited from the past, et cetera. It goes deep into time and it also goes forward in the future. Genetic code is very similar to reading an astrology chart. Um, but what is so important, and I think this is an aspect of free will, is interpretation. Because in the hands of a eugenicist, reading somebody's uh, DNA is a very dark path. This is a person that has made their own value judgments on the, the worth and the significance of somebody's particular makeup, mm -hmm. which I do think is, uh, that's, that's wrong. You know, that is actually out of bounds because we don't necessarily have the capacity to make value judgments like that. It's something that we need to take real responsibility for is our capacity to interpret and also recognize our limitations. So one of the things that I feel like is valuable about aligning with divine will is that if you are, if you are responsible for, let's say again, responsible for interpreting somebody's genetic code and giving them information that could help them, you could really mm -hmm. help somebody. You could tell you have these markers for cancer. You have these kinds of weaknesses. If you take care of yourself now, you could really give yourself a smoother path. Yep. Same as you do for your clients, you know? Um, but like, you know, you have to actually tune into a higher mind. You have to tune into love. You have to tune into something that is forever eternally loving, merciful, and finds value in all life that actually will always find a way to bring something that could be a challenge into an opportunity the whole idea of alchemy, for example, another branch of hermeticism was that, yeah, gold hides in all lead. And it's actually a part of your power and part of your free will, as a matter of mm -hmm. fact. Well, yeah. Yeah. So that brings me to something you said. I, I just jotted it down so I wouldn't forget because I'm a menopause brain. Um, two things I'll say about what you said because I'll lose my thread. Just go back to, does it help to say your markers and your genes are, are X, Y, and these are X, Y, yes, of course, it's very preventative. But like when I think of the example with the actress, she was on a screenplay for five years that she hadn't any mojo to write. But when she found the name of the character, and this is not any old name like Jan Smith, Jane Smith, this is like an interesting name. Wow. Uh, in her so saw it with me, me, saw me put it in there, watched it come up. Wow. Then she motivated, like then she was sparked to get that thing written. Now, here's the thing. Is she... What, you know, I call it divine intelligent design, DID. The di divine intelligent design led her to me to show her the devil is in the detail to motivate her to keep going with something she was already wanting and probably destined to do. And then I go, well, maybe it would have always been written, but later, maybe it would have been written with less gusto. I don't know. But the second thing that you said, the value judgment, you know, like a eugenicist may say, well, that's a, you know, that's a bad, uh, gene, we don't want to pass it into the gene pool, like in Man in the High Castle, let's, you know, put you out of your misery and not pass those genes on. That's right. a really dark part of that old um, sh show that used to be a few years ago. But I also think that there's another kind of value judgment that as astrologers and as consumers of astrology that we're not aware of. And the value judgment is bad things shouldn't happen. Uh, 
difficulty right. is bad. We have to, at all circumstances in our life, avoid challenging, difficult, hard, gut-wrenching, emotionally challenging, or physically challenging reality. Yeah. But if you're talking about alchemy, you need to distill. You got to do the distillation. I mean, you don't get that freaking philosopher's stone because you laid around in your white picket fence, you know, reading trashy Harlequin romances and, you know, and we're never having anything bad happen. I don't know why that came to trashy Harlequin romances, but nothing yeah. bad ever happens because you don't live your life because you're hiding from life. And, you know, as much as an astrologer, we're here to provide uplift and hope. Yeah, I can't count the times that I've had to also provide realism for a client, you know, right. I'm sorry, that marriage looks really troubled. Um, right. There are ways that this can uplift. But are you really asking permission permission for it not to go anywhere? Because you know, you look at the chart, and you go, wow, like, let me just say somebody who married somebody with all the hallmarks of a narcissist, because I, I think I figured out the code for narcissism in the marriage partner. You know, do you really want them to persevere under an abusive controlling relationship dynamic? Or do you want to liberate them by saying it looks like shit? It's really difficult. And by the way, Saturn's spending three years in your marriage house, and he'll basically kick the tires really hard. And if there's anything wrong, that whole foundation is going to crumble. So so there's so and let alone eclipses that really do that they can knock the marriage out of the out of the ring of life so wow. that's just an example but you know i do know that the that's part of the abraham hicks the secret the law of attraction bullshit it's all like we're going to manifest a perfect life nothing bad should happen and it won't because i got my hands on the steering wheel but yeah. You don't have it. It's that Carrie Underwood song, Jesus Take the Wheel. You know, Jesus Take the Wheel. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know the song, but I get the sentiment. It's a hokey country and western song. Yeah. yeah. And I I could not agree more. I feel like um I always actually use this metaphor. If we were to write the story of our own life, it would be the most boring thing ever. It wouldn't be a story because the story actually revolves around the conflict. That's what makes a story. There's a character that starts out one way, realizes that they don't have something that they need, and then they embark upon a journey to go get it, and they change by the end of it. That's a story, every story, without the conflict or the lack, the insecurity, the challenge, mm -hmm. there's nothing happening. And so I totally agree with you about that 100%. And I do try to impart that philosophically. Like we do not actually get to choose everything that happens to us. Obviously we would never choose challenges, the ones we have to overcome, but they mm -hmm. make us better. And, you know, Buddhists always say, and they're absolutely right. Compassion doesn't just fall from the sky. You're not just born the most compassionate person. It comes from suffering. Oh God. Yeah. I have this mole on my face under my eye and it, I went to a Chinese face reader in LA one time years ago. And she said, Oh, you've got the teardrop mole and that's for compassion. So this is my life in which I'm here to develop compassion. And I was like really young in my early thirties. I'm like, Oh, okay. Sounds good. Nothing bad had yet happened to me. My parents hadn't died suddenly before I was 40. You know, my two, a marriage hadn't crashed and burned on the, my mother being hit by a car when I was 39, fourth wow. house perfection age, which has to do with the house of the mother. And, you know, I was like, well, I'm pretty compassionate. Well, I had no clue what that was really about until difficult circumstances emerged in my life where I could relate to other people going through very difficult circumstances in their lives. And oh. that's how you have compassion. You have that ability to relate from a place of your heart, not your head. Um, you said something else, squares, yeah. You know, no one wants to talk about the squares in their chart, let alone the T-squares and the oppositions, but the squares are, 
that's the gritty square tension that you're going to deal with in your life that can create the greatness in you. You know, that old oyster creates the pearl from the grit of discontent metaphor. And, you know, and the oppositions are the oppositional forces that drive the conflict that create the greatness. Mm -hmm. And a finger of God requires a great deal of sacrifice, but gives you greatness. So these charts full of trines and sextiles only, you're on a like a, what do you call it? Like a, Oh, I got the word for it. It's like in Star Trek when they get to go down to the planet and have a vacay. You're on a timeout, you know? You're on a life in which you're just like, oh, last one was really tough. I'll take a vacay life. <laughs> yeah, totally. Absolutely. I've, I completely agree. I have a T-square. I have uh, the, you know, the ruler of my chart is Jupiter and Capricorn. <laughs> oh, I know. I heard that in your podcast. You were thunderstruck when you were told, you to the word thunderstruck, that this was a problem you could not overcome. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I actually, I still, I, I like overcoming the problem. See that I've come to understand that it was overcoming the problem that has made me, has given me tremendous freedom, way more than I could have ever asked for. Mm -hmm. Another thing to remember, like I, when we talk about the divine mind tuning into that, like higher intelligence, that higher presence, whether you want to call it the platonic forms where everything is perfect or you want to call it god's divine plan or you want to call it the one mind or brahma it doesn't matter when you tune into that you realize it is actually greater than what you have the capacity you have and here's just a simple example like i had a friend who moved into a new house um she was renting a room and she's like you've got to come this house is under a tree and it's the greatest tree you've ever seen now i love my friend i believe her I have every reason to tune into that and, and imagine the greatest tree that I can ever imagine. So there's no blocks. There's no resistance. I'm like absolutely trying to imagine the best tree that I could ever, ever, ever come up with. And I did. And my tree was pretty great. And I actually thought it was pretty great. And I couldn't wait to see the tree. And I actually feared that I might be disappointed because I thought my tree is so awesome. I wonder if this tree can actually live up to what I imagined. I get there and it is a like gigantic, like Jurassic Park, gigantic Morton Bay fig. And it is the most amazing, beautiful tree I've ever seen. Its roots are like giant elephant, <laughs> elephant sized roots. It's like, it's got a swing in it. It's providing more shade than I could ever imagine. It's like, you could live in this tree. Mm. And I realized, oh my God, my imagination is quite limited and that's all there is to it. And so if it's up to me to create my own reality exclusively, mm -hmm. then I'm going to be really, really missing out because I can't even imagine how great a tree could be. And here it is. So that to me is a perfect example of my imagination my will versus divine will the divine will is way better if i had just tapped into that if i had actually maybe humbled myself a little and tried to actually maybe do something more psychic and tune into like show me the tree what tree is she talking about maybe i could have seen it yeah yeah uh, that's like that's a really great story i really love that story because it's so true i'll give you a, sort of an example maybe from my life i have many of those stories as well are the limits of our imagination right and if, when we're talking about god and imagination neville um, goddard wrote a book called awakened imagination in the 1940s or 50s 50s he has spiritual awakening it's free you can get it as a pdf anywhere because it's i know no longer has a uh, publisher rights it's a really beautiful book and he talks about the level of imagination 
imagine as we go up the vertical cross, like, you know, the Jesus cross, you know, away from the middle of the equidistant, we ha he calls it awakened imagination. We move that imagination up and up and up to, to, to connect with the divine mind or the highest level of power available to us when our imagination aligns with the divine mind, right. which is a really cool way of putting it. But in my real life, like your story about the tree, I mean, there was a period in my life where it's, dear God, I want to win the lottery. Dear God, help me win the lottery. Let me win the lottery. All the petitions to win the effing lottery. Now, <laughs> the reason I wanted to win the lottery is because I spent a decade living off my life savings because I decided after a spiritual awakening in 2011 that it was more important to gestate and, and study with shamans around the world. And I was getting down to the bottom of a barrel that made me uncomfortable. You know, God does not hear what we want or the universal mind doesn't not understand that, you know, in the ebb and flow, I was down in the ebb. But what the divine mind did is so funny. Didn't I didn't win the lottery. I became an, a whole full-time astrologer. <laughs> and that was because divine mind was intelligent. And I took the avocation of astrology, the hobby in 2018, studied Hellenistic astrology, didn't like it, loved it, didn't learn it, remembered it. It was like inhaling a memory. This was like, I know this. I, I'm good at it because I remember it. I'm not learning it for the first time. Yes, multiple lives or concurrent eternal now lives are, are one of my partook of astrology in the ancient world. And I went to work. Yeah. And if I had got that lottery win before 2018, I would have laid on my ass doing nothing. I would have yeah. sat around going, this is so wonderful. Thank you, God. In the meantime, I get to meet 5,000 people over four and a half years. I get to reach other people who have never heard of astrology. I get to teach people to become astrologers to the degree in which they can use their own chart for guidance, not, not other people. That takes more time. Yeah. But it, it's God's intelligent design. It's like, well, and you need some money, but we're not just going to toss you a lottery. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I had the same experience, actually, because the reason I was so upset about my the reading I got about my Jupiter in Capricorn in the second house was because at the time I was struggling and striving to get a good job as a professor. I had taken out student loans and worked so hard. I had a teaching credential already. And now I wanted to go teach college. And it was like just upstream against the grain, so much resistance. And I was forcing myself into this, this, uh, you know, this life that was clearly not meant for me. If I had actually just paid attention to mm -hmm. every signal I was getting, um, I wouldn't have continued to pursue it, but I did because I thought that it was the only way that I would ever be able to have a decent life, you know, and I was struggling. I was working three jobs. And so I'm like this, I'll become a professor. That'll be perfect. I'll have all my needs met. I don't need to be rich. I just, I want to have a meaningful job and I want to have my needs met. And that's the only way it was the only thing I could think of again, limited imagination. And so essentially that's what I was praying for. Like, I want this job. Please help me get this job. I'm working so hard, but while I was in grad school, um, I was, again, I was, I didn't like the constrictions that were being put on my mind. I didn't like their interpretation of anything, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't appreciate their interpretation of my favorite literature, my favorite poets, their interpretation of history. I was just like, this is, this is not gelling with me at all. And so in order to get through it, I argued to the department that I should be able to use astrology as a lens of perspective on history and historical figures. Brilliant. And they told me no, 
And then I asked again, and I said, this is the oldest body of knowledge in the world. And it has more historical precedent than any other sources that you are tapping into. And so uh, I'm going to make it academic, but it is a resource. I can use astrology. And so I finally got approved. And so I started writing all these essays that included astrology. And I'm still thinking consciously, I'm still imagining with all my might that I'm just going to go and get this professor job. But I ended up not getting a professor job. And then I was told that the best I could do is wait for an adjunct position, which would have been $50 an hour, part-time, no benefits. And I'm like, I'm still going to have to work two jobs just like now. Mm -hmm. And so I realized at the end of all of that, this is like, this is so terrible. And so I had a kind of nervous breakdown after I graduated Hmm. into a deep, deep, deep depression. Um, I kind of like laid in a bathtub anytime I could. I had a little job here, a little job there. I was tutoring. I was writing grants for a nonprofit. I was doing what I had to do, but I was so, so, so upset and so deeply disturbed, so deeply depressed. And then a couple months into that, I was looking online for a particular article and it was actually it was about Venus stationing direct in Leo. So this is the last time Venus was retrograde. Oh, that's your ninth house of academia. Yeah, exactly. And so I, while she was retrograde, I had realized like, oh, it, it, it ain't going to happen as smoothly as you thought. That whole like career path gone, you know, she retrogrades and, and I have to face that. I totally descended, you know, and then um, it was August and I'm like, you know, Venus is stationing direct. I want to read a really good article on this station. I want to read a good article on the process that's been unfolding and what's happening next. And I couldn't find it. Everything was too hot, too cold, too soft, too hard. And I realized after searching for this article for like two hours and just going like, not this, not this, not this, I realized, oh my God, I'm supposed to write it. So I realized all that writing I had done in grad school had left me wanting to write. Like I'm just like a racehorse that's trapped in a stall. And so mm. I just decided like, just, just write it, you know, just write it. And I did. And um, I published it on a free WordPress blog and I had never done anything like that before. And then I posted it on Facebook um, again, never done anything like that before just came out of me just boom. And that mm. literally got a ball rolling and it rolled really fast and so like a couple of weeks into writing articles, because I really enjoyed it. It was cathartic for me. Mm -hmm. I wasn't in school anymore. All my dreams are shattered, but I love astrology still. So I'm like, let's just do something while I'm waiting to figure out my life. That's literally what I thought was going on. So if my thoughts really created reality, it would have been that I'm just doing this in between while I get my life figured out. But two weeks in, somebody with a big blog wrote me and said, hey, would you publish a column? And I was like, yes. And then like a month into that, somebody's like, hey, are you doing readings professionally? And I was like, sure, let me figure out a way to take your money. So then I got a client. Then I got some really good advice from somebody who knew what they were doing. They told me to get a, an email list, start a newsletter. So I just listened to everybody that came. I didn't do anything. I had no master plan. I had literally just, I just sat there and walked through open doors and took people's advice. And before I knew it, I was quitting my job and working for myself, which I've been doing for eight years now. 
That's wonderful. I love that. Yeah, again, our, our imaginations are so limited and often misdirected, you know, the aim you were going for. Like, that's one thing I do want to say, Jupiter in the second house, forget about Capricorn, uh, a lot of people with that position will be able to prosper financially by teaching. You do a lot of teaching. I took, as I said, one of your Mercury webinars in 2020, maybe from Montreal, when I was in lockdown there. And I really enjoyed your style of education. And here's the thing, you know, but also for thinking about astrology in terms of, you know, the ninth house being a, technically the house of uh, colleges and campuses and, and you know, higher learning centers. Yeah. You know, Jupiter in the is a ruler of your entire story. He's your helmsman, like the ruler of your first house. And he's an aversion to the ninth house. He can't see it. So we don't do in conjuncts in traditional astrology. 150 degrees away is like, I don't see you. You don't see me. Well, yeah. You know, good luck. And that could be a warning flag right away. Like I have Jupiter in my second, as do you. I love to teach. It's one of my favorite parts of being an astrologer. And yet, um, I did well in university. And at one point, like you, I thought I'm going to go super academic and get my doctorate. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, my mind is going there because I'm like an A student, but the universe closed all the doors. I'll tell you how fast it closed the doors on one of them. I was doing my master's. Of, I was offered a scholarship to George Mason University for my uh, creative writing when I was in my early 30s. I was going to do my MFA at George Mason, but I had a young child at home. I didn't have the resources for a caregiver and I had to drive from DC to Fairfax and that was going to be a two hour trip. And so I, I, ha I was like, okay, this isn't going to work. I didn't have support for my husband to do that. And so I ended up going to American University. And in the first, I did the first term. I was so disappointed. I didn't even officially withdraw. I just disappeared and never showed up again. And so like when I tried to push into that ninth house, you know, for me, there's other reasons why it doesn't work for me. It's not just Jupiter in the second, because he's your ruler. But when I pushed against the brain of my chart, not knowing that's what I was doing, I was just disappointed. Like it led me down a, a direction that had too much resistance, too much friction. Like, you know, it's one thing to swim upstream if you're going to lay some eggs like a salmon. It's another thing to swim upstream when all you're going to do is get pushed right back down. Yeah. So I learned early on to watch for signals, even if anyone's listening and you're not an astrologer or a tarot reader, just look for signals where you get a sense that there's continually roadblocks and things just don't flow. And and, and that's not to say when things are hard, we give up. But if it's like resistance, roadblock, glitches continually happening, just stop and say, am I imagining for my life something that's really not my... Is there a better is there a better thing that can be imagined than what I think I want? Exactly. 100%. And even within that lead, which I would call grad school total lead. It was dense, it was dark, it was lusterless. Mm -hmm. But I found the gold in it because what did I do? I I just was like in order for me to even breathe, I have to actually incorporate something I love into my essays. And I did. And it just unwittingly turned out to be great practice for actually writing about astrology. And then I took off like a racehorse a couple of months after my deep, dark depression. Then, then, then I took off like a racehorse, but you never know uh, what exactly is going to be discovered within a, a confusing situation. But definitely, I wish I had been more sensitive to my own needs because I was pretty much denying myself everything. And Yet it was, um, yeah, it was the way that I discovered what I really wanted to do. And I didn't actually ask for this. This was not my original plan. I wasn't saying, I, I didn't think that I deserved to actually work for myself. I had never conceived of having my own business. I thought that I was somehow excluded from such a wonderful experience. I certainly uh -huh. dreamed of it, like in a very peripheral way. 
I thought, oh, how nice that must be. But it was like, I felt like the little match girl. I'm looking in the window at other people who have happiness like that. So it's well, mysterious. Yeah, but you, there's a value add to astrology too, because someone could say, looking at maybe your, your whole sign Aries fifth house or the ruler there of Mars, this can lend itself to clues that entrepreneurial life can work. And I can tell you that I've had clients who don't think they can be an entrepreneur. They have a great entrepreneur signatures in their chart, like Mars in the second or <clears throat> some really strong power in their fifth. And they find it that it's true when they give it a try. And other people who are trying to do it is they're not succeeding. And you can look at the chart and go, you know, it isn't your strong hand. It's like that gene code reading you said, you know, this is not the place of strength. If you keep pushing here, you may get some success, but will it be a place of joy? Right. You know, probably not. Where's your son? Um, I'm in, I have a son in Virgo. Oh, okay. Strength of Midheaven. So I used to think that meant I was supposed to be a teacher. You know, I'm like, that's it. I'm going to be in a classroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a ruler of the ninth on the midheaven would make you think that. But then again, it's an inversion. The ruler's an inversion to the ninth. So doesn't witness it from a semi-sextile. So more, it's more of a difference. Like, like I'll, I always find the sun in the midheaven tricky for clients. So not to get too astrological, because this is not what the point of the talk is. But, you know, you're, you're going to find that often sun in the midheaven is going to want you to align with the patriarchal or father type expectation for what you're here to do until you free yourself of that. Some people will never have it, but it could be your father's lineage, your father's side of the family. We educate, we go all full on, or, you know, we're meant to be super, super professorial or something. But I think that sun in the midheaven, moon on the midheaven are tricky placements because there's almost a need to shake off the matrilineal and patrilineal expectations of what you're here to do. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely was, um, I, I imposed a tremendous amount of burden on myself when I was young. I, I was very burdened by my own sense of responsibility to do a lot of things that actually my physical father didn't even expect of me. I was mm. so hard on myself that my own father would actually be like, honey, relax. <laughs> honey, relax. You don't need to worry about this right now. I was really uptight when I was very young. I was super perfectionistic, super A-type. Um, but, you know, Gary Caton actually gave me a lot of insight into how that shifted. And it was because there was that elemental mutation of Mercury. I was born um, with, okay, when did it happen? When I was about 15, 15 mm -hmm. years old, Mercury uh, mutated into fire and I completely changed. Like something just shifted in me. I was, I started out with like this earth quality, mm -hmm. very mm -hmm. uptight, very stubborn, very responsible. And then when I was about 15, I really discovered like, no, I want to be an artist. And <laughs> I want to write poetry. I want to be an artist. And then everything that I pursued after that felt like it was anathema to my spirit. And so right. it all culminated in me actually just finally becoming an astrologer, which is a perfect balance of the two. I feel like I finally found harmony because yeah, I do. I love to teach and I love to study and I love to help people. I love to uh, feel like I'm being of service. That's so essential to me, but I also need to feel extremely free. I need to feel like I have mm. freedom and it's just a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm very grateful for this situation. And I feel like as a part of free will, some of it is um, surrendering to what has been given to you, whatever it may be. 
And it's that that actually transforms. That's like the real alchemy of consciousness itself. Because a lot of times we can't do anything about our situation. Like being raised Christian, very significant thing to meditate on is Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows it is predetermined what is going to happen to him. Mm -hmm. For sure. His whole life was predetermined. That's for sure. Um, But it is of his own free will that he dies, which is so important, even though he prays, even though he suffers, even though it's against every fiber of his body to actually willingly go to death, he does it willingly. That's the whole magic. That's the whole alchemy of that sacrifice. And I think it's really deeply symbolic of what free will often actually is. Like if you're going to get married and it's not truly of your free will, then it's not a good marriage. (laughs) It has to, you have to surrender to something of your own free will, meaning that you are willing to align with it and to find the best possible Mm. qualities in it, the best possible experience, the best quality of life. Mm -hmm. And if me, that's what astrology is so helpful for. I feel like, yeah, I mean, it has, in your case, you can see so much in terms of when things are going to happen and how things are unfolding and a sort of destiny written in there but free will is like the quality of experience the qualia as philosophers say um which is that's so personal how much you choose to drink in the scent of a rose and really let it move you how mm-hmm. much you choose to find the 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 good in someone how much you choose to appreciate the opportunity that even a negative experience might have that to me is what free will truly is like when you surrender to the situation whatever it may be and then you do your utmost to align with the highest possible perspective the highest possible transformation whatever it may be it's not easy well you know that's called like practicing enlightenment because you know christian murdy says um you know how do you how's your life since you've been enlightened enlightened he said well it's simple as this i don't mind what happens or Katie Byron Katie would say, um, I don't argue with reality anymore. And so part of what you're actually saying is like, if we step into the as if like, you know, fake it till you make it, there's a quality of living your life with with a state of active surrender and a deep connection with what is actually happening with no uh, resistance. And you know, we don't want we very rarely resist the pleasurable and happy and effusive moments of our lives. But we all resist pain, physical, emotional, mental. Mm-hmm. And yet those circumstances that give rise to those pain, that kind of pain, all three, um, are highly important to our lives. And you said something else about, you know, moving your your mutation of your Mercury and all. I, I'm not sure if he's using a solar arc or he's looking at, it doesn't matter what pattern path he was looking at. Um, a natal chart is never static. Yeah. I mean, and that's one thing I don't even like about um, the modern astrology, which is all psychological, which I actually think is BS. And I was a modern astrologer until I wasn't. And um, my chart made no sense to me at all. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I could talk about whole sign houses riveting my world, but it changed everything. Mm-hmm. It makes sense of my chart. My chart makes sense now that I'm using whole sign houses. Before that, born at a northern latitude, the skew was so big, it had almost all these planets in an intercepted second house, and it made no sense about my life. So reality shifted on its axis when I discovered the accuracy of mirroring back to me, myself, because astrology isn't causal, planets don't cause things, as above, so below, as below, so it is above. It's simply a mirror of circumstance, a mirror of soul's choice. And when 
when you use astrology, understanding that it is always mutating and rotating through very various permutations from distributions through the bounds, solar arc directions, um, Lord of the solar return, the solar return snapshot. Um, these things show you your chart is in motion. I mean, I'm born as an Aquarius rising, right? So am I always going to like really be like an Aquarius rising with no sense of ever shifting away from the Aquarian quality of my life? No, because my, my progressive son is in, in Aries now. Same with my son. I was born with my son in uh, Aries and now it's in Gemini. So qualities of beingness, air, Gemini, you know, fire, Aries have mutated into ascendant uh, and solar um, what's the word like expression in my in the mandala of my life. So that's the other thing was the static quality, not to be a bitch about modern astrology, but they really don't account for the idea that this is a ongoing, uh, moving beast, this thing called your astrology chart, your natal sky. Yeah, exactly. Like everything in reality, constantly changing, evolving, moving. Mm-hmm. nothing is static, you know, not even not even rocks if you look close enough. (laughs) They too are shifting. And I I agree with you. I think it's also really, it's beautiful because you can really see like the sort of alchemical potion that your consciousness is. And of course it's evolving and changing its elemental structure and yeah, your solar arc Jupiter is no longer in your second house and debility is somewhere in Aquarius because I'm assuming you're, you know, you're under, you're, you're in your thirties or something or early. What are you? 138. Oh, yeah. So, of course. So, you, you know, even if you had a zero degree cap, you know, Jupiter in your second, that at 30 years old, you would have mutated to an Aquarian Jupiter in your third. Thus, you're blogging, you're writing, you're teaching, you're, yeah. you're creating your, 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 you know, Demetra George talks about how the third house is the house of the goddess. And it also is emblematic of a connection to the tools of scrying. So, yeah. the diviners, the, the crystal ball gazers, the tea gaze uh, leaf readers, belong to the house of the goddess the the temple of god the ninth house is really much more about those religious structures you know or going to the official oracle of delphi whereas you want to get your bones cast or go to a tea house for your tea leaves that's the goddess of the third and so you know having your jupiter there makes so much sense but that's the whole point you no longer are really yes you still have jupiter and capricorn and i know where that shows up for you by the way because i love something about you you really command your worth in the prices you charge for your services that's something i'm not as good at but capricorn jupiter it's like oh man like you know i'm refined i'm entitled and i'm good at material prosperity watch me go and that base of a jupiter and cap in your second will never leave but now you get the jupiter in aquarius overlay that's playing out so that's so much of a different signature Wow. What an interesting insight, you know, because from my perspective, like that journey was difficult. I had to learn that for sure. It was not an easy thing to learn, but you're right. I did. I knew that it was an important part of my work to learn that and to also teach it to others because Mm -hmm. I have a lot of people that come to me, um, not just about astrology. They want to start their own businesses. They want to gain certain freedom. They want to figure out how to sell their art, things like that. I talk to people about all kinds of things. And so one of those principles that I really try to teach is yes, like, please do charge what you are worth. And that means that you have to charge more than what you would say just off the cuff. (laughs) Absolutely. It's my, it's my growth edge. And another thing about a fallen planet, because for newbies to astrology, Jupiter is fallen. Um, He exalts, you know, in your eighth house, I always call it chunky money, but you know, it's like, I 
always say a fallen planet is just temporarily down and out. It's going to, that fallen planet figures out, you remember that old, you, you're too young for this. There was a commercial with someone who falls down, a little old lady, I've fallen down and I can't get up. It was all over the 70s and 80s news waves anyway. It's a joke in my my age group. Yeah. And um, bottom line is that fallen planet can rise and it can rise by expressing as if it was Cancerian, as if it was in your eighth house. And you know, eighth house monies are amazing. I mean, they're often like, I'm sleeping and money's being made while I'm asleep, you know, royalty income. J.K. Rowling, goddess of the trillionaire, has like a stellium in her eighth house. Yeah. Wow. I, first of all, I've never heard that before. I've never heard that concept that the fallen planet will eventually rise. Mm-hmm. In, I have never heard that before. Thank you. I really You're like welcome. Well, and then the risen planets are the, or the exalted planets fall, you know, and so but they don't just fall down and never get up. So, um, there's a sense of it. There's a continual potential for um, sort of extremes of the fallen or exalted planet. But the best thing to understand is that that fallen planet can act as if it is exalted for you because it's eighth house op- opposite the second. That's going to be about wealth accumulation. So, and uh, being able to make money, make money, and to find ways to get chunks of money, and you know, and not not being like a, a slave to dollars for hours, basically. Oh my God. Like I, the problem with me was that I always was so, I, I was not interested in money at all. I was like never interested when I found out like for real, when I had the reality check that I was going to have to be concerned with this, <laughs> it, it's a large learning curve. Cause I was like, I just want, I don't want to have to think about that. And I think it might be, I have, you know, I have Saturn in Scorpio, 12th house, Pluto in Scorpio. I, have I was this- just about to ask you where that Saturn was. <laughs> 12th house. And I feel like I kind of always had this resonance was like, can't I just sort of not that I wanted to be a nun because I'm, I'm neither Catholic and I always wanted to get married, but I just, I really loved the feeling of just having all of your needs taken care of while you focus on your work. Like I focus on Saturn in the 12th can make you very much the cave monk. You know what I mean? Wanting to like go off into the the, the ashram or something. Um, But there is an upside to it too. You know, I mean, it's not often talked about in modern astrology, but the foreigners are also of the 12th and, and revenue generated from foreign countries, foreign business, foreign lands is often very much a 12th house matter. So you can take, um, you know, what is the word like the the good news is Saturn will help you stabilize long term money in a sextile to Jupiter in your second through foreign revenue, which you do because you're PayPal stripe like I am. You know you're an international entrepreneur, and that's exactly how it's showing you. You couldn't do that as a professor unless you're a traveling professor. So it really is the career that you're in is allowing that possibility for you. Exactly, and is it my free will? Ah. <laughs> oh my god back to the punchline <laughs> i mean it's very interesting because like I, my story is fascinating because it's like it was magical i definitely see it that way i met it halfway when it was coming to me i definitely reached out and embraced it mm-hmm. which i do recognize as my free will um i have made the most of it that i can which i feel is very much my free will but did i have the original master plan no, I cannot take credit for that. And so at some level, I really do have to just thank God, thank the divine for giving me a gift that I didn't know to ask for, which to me is like, it's beyond karma and cause and effect. That's what we call grace, where you're just like given something that you did not know to ask for. You didn't understand that that's what you needed, yeah. but it was yeah. you. 
Oh my God, it's so perfect what you just said. It is. It is. We often don't even know what we need. We. I was getting involved in a romance a, a few years ago, and I heard a voice and God, voice of God spoke to me in my kitchen. I was just starting out. It was barely in, like we we're going to meet for the first time at long distance and pre-pandemic. And I literally heard the voice of God in my kitchen say, "He's everything that you want and nothing that you need." <laughs> and I had the courage to actually call this person and say, "It's off. God told me it's not right for me." We're really good wow. friends since then but you know we often don't, we're so myopic and we're so limited as you said in our imagination but it also in our understanding of what is truly the most incredibly a luscious path for us and we take all these little detours in our in our idea of what's good for us um and you said one more cool thing and it made me think about oh what was it you said oh i know um I earlier said when things are hard, uh, maybe it's a sign we're on the wrong path. And that's sometimes true. And when I want to qualify that right now, because I just realized there is a qualifier. When things are difficult and gritty and hard in our lives, and we're pushing to get something to happen, whether it's a new business, a new relationship, um, then you're going to be given clues by synchronicity or dreams from the universe to keep pushing. And that's where it comes into being still within yourself and be able to have the bandwidth and the time to see and hear those messages. So for example, my YouTube channel, I really struggled in the beginning because I changed the channel from all about enlightenment-y stuff to astrology. And I just changed the channel name in 2018. And my channel was growing. And I completely did a bait and switch for my my audience and it tanked the algorithm. And I remember being in Montreal very frustrated in 2019 into 2020 that my channel growth was really terrible. Two things happened that I knew I should keep pushing. One was a girlfriend of mine who was, her channel was taken off. She's just said to me, Lori, keep going. It's a long game. And that was all it took, but that may not have been enough to grind away looking like futile. What the second um, signal I got at the same time, so I'm listening for clues, was I had a dream uh, that Lada Donchiva, who's one of the people I adore, Astra Lada, she's one of my favorite astrologers and a bit of a mentor in some ways. And uh, I had a dream and I was talking with Astralada, Lada Donchiva. Check her channel at anyone. She's amazing. And um, she's a big wig. She's got 300,000 followers right now. But at the time she made it had 150. She was t- having a baby. She was kind of downwinding a little bit off. And, but nonetheless, I still admired her and she was in my dream. And she's, I said, Hey, Lada. I'm, I said, I said something to her that made no sense. Cause honestly, my channel was growing like, like five subscribers a month. And I said, I am going to be you one day. I'm going to make my channel successful. Now, you know, the two things came together and I knew that I was being told it's hard. Don't get, don't quit. You're not off your path. You're just on a very steep curve to like a very hard mountain to climb right now. Yeah. So those magical stories are how life should operate. The grace is, the grace is there in so many ways in reality and astrology can help point us in the right direction but it's up to i think it's up to each of us to really tune in to those signals and really listen for them synchronicities are i usually call them kisses from god they're really just the divine signal trying to get through a very staticky world yes i i love that and um those kinds of prophetic dreams are they're very similar to astrology because it's symbolic and you have to interpret it Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to know like is the desire to grow your channel born from that dream or did the did did you have that i don't know how to say it but 
it's it's difficult to know where one thing ends and the next begins, but that dream was definitely something that gave you at a subconscious level, planted a seed to give you the courage to understand that it will flourish. It is oh, going to flourish. Oh, Just no, that dream was like a freaking like, you know, lighthouse in a storm. I literally oh. clung to it for like a year going, I had the dream. It's going to, I mean, the dream is, I, I, I dream prophetically of world events. I've always had prophetic dreams. So I had dead people too. Um, but the prophetic ones are particularly useful for me because I'm a dream. I'm a dream person. I pay attention, and uh, I, that was literally like me holding on because the dream said, "Don't give up." And then wow. I, the reason I want to bring it up, it doesn't have to be so profound. There's an ancient art of getting messages from the universe by going out into a public setting, like sitting on a bench or sitting in a cafe or going anywhere where there's a lot of people, having a question before you go out, like, uh, "Should I stick with this marriage? Uh, should I travel to Bali? Should I do that?" whatever your question is and go sit down and wait for the answer because it'll be a passerby conversation or a bit of overheard conversation as long as you set the time frame obviously you sit outside for two days on one bench you're going to hear all kinds of stuff just set the time frame to hear a a, a conversation somewhere from someone that's going to give you the answer so you don't have to be a, a dream prophet i just have that skill mm. and you know, there's so many scrying tools of everyday you know the everyday world that we don't have to have any talents we just have to put the question out dear universe divine intelligent mind god source i needed some help give me a clue you know wow i've never heard that before but that's like that's like bibliomancy but in public conversation and What's, i actually what is bibliomancy is it when you open a book randomly yeah i open a book randomly which i love oh, oh I my love god i love that one you know what i'll tell you i saved my ass i was like supposed to do a BBC documentary on the frontiers of consciousness research. And I was a remote viewer because the main remote viewer uh, from the Stargate group uh, got sick of all things or canceled. And so I got pulled in a week before. So the, the guy, uh, what was his name? When he, uh, it'll come to me. He trained me for a week, a fast train, really fast training. I already was doing some of it. He trained me for a week of intensive training. And the day before the filming, I got, I started to feel sick. Like literally felt like fluish and I had a fever and I was really sick after the day of filming. But I opened up my, my dictionary. I said, dear universe, should I still film this thing tomorrow? Even though I know I'm coming down with something. And I landed randomly on the word Oracle. So I was like, okay, I'll do it anyway, but boy, do I not feel well. So I managed to pull it off. I, I didn't even feel sick during the filming. And then after that, the next four days or five days, I was in bed with the flu. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. oh my God. I mean, that's a whole nother topic that I'm super interested in. And I mean, I could talk to you for an hour about remote viewing, but I just have one question, I guess, like mm -hmm. the official story that the, you know, the operation came back with, I guess, like the CIA's report is that remote viewing is pretty underwhelming and it's not really that valid. And it's certainly not a science. It's just a pseudoscience. And, um, um, and yet there was like 20 years of research and many, many millions of dollars. And so I'm just curious your experience of working with these high level remote viewers who have been trained in this mental technology, the psychic technology. Well, uh, I think it just went underground. Okay. I think the funding yeah. went underground and, um, and that's all that happened. It just went like deep, deep, you know, black ops kind of direction. I was involved at when it was collapsing. It was the first year after they defunded and went public with what was happening. And then I, the scattering of the remote viewers in charge, my guy was up 
at Fort Meade and he worked with the NSA and all of that. Yeah. He, he lived in the area I lived in, Annapolis, Annapolis, Maryland. He lived there at the time. And it's, it's, so I got involved after it all fell apart. So, I mean, if I was to ask him, you know, what happened, I'm pretty sure he'd say what I said, that the, it still exists. It's just not anymore uh, on the surface of everyone knows about it because, I mean, he couldn't hide Stanford, what Stanford was doing. Yeah. Um, but the other thing was, you know, I got in there by mistake. So I'm going to say all remote viewers who are successful haven't just learned a protocol they're already gifted like i can't sing i'm never going to be an opera singer but i have really good psychic ability as a child so i got in there because i was already seeing clients as a clairvoyant for like four years and i went to a workshop he taught and he had about you know 12 people in his home for the remote viewing workshop on a weekend and i guess this would be 1997 and I got into it, the workshop and everyone else is just a housewife or a, a Joe Blow. And I'm the only person who does this for a career. And so at the end of the workshop, he had we had an envelope and he passed it around and we had to hold the envelope and use the protocol, you know, to tune into what was in the envelope. So we had all kinds of answers. But when it came to me, I said, well, I'm seeing, I'm hearing roaring water. I see the shape of a horseshoe. I think it's Niagara Falls. I was that specific and they tell you not to interpret, but I thought this is like a horseshoe and roaring water. It's got to be Niagara Falls. But I also saw an eagle flying above the falls in my inner inner remote viewing. I saw a bird and I saw it was an eagle. Well, he pulls out the, and I didn't say that because I was thinking that was just my totem animal. I was into shamanism and I had, the eagle was one of my totem ally animals. And <laughs> after everyone's gone and said something like, some people had nothing. Some people said I saw the color gray and I go so specific. He walks across the room and hands me the envelope. I pull it out. It's the horseshoe Niagara Falls with an eagle flying above it. Oh my God. Which is how and why he pulled me in as a substitute remote viewer. And then I ended up doing some treasure hunting, remote viewing for other people for a while. But, you know, it's not so much just remote viewing. All the good remote viewers were already psychic. Of course. I mean, I I just think that's so amazing. I I do not have this ability. I'm pretty sure. I'm very interested in it. I really admire people who can do that. And do you use this ability in your personal life or your work in any way? Like, I'm just curious. you can't turn it off, you know. It's it's always on for me. I turn it I turn it on for clients. I turn it off during my re- regular life. Otherwise, you're flooded with unnecessary information about people uh, that you just encounter on the day to day. Oh, okay. I'm getting a knock at my door. I think my sister's telling me dinner's ready. You and I could talk forever. Oh my God, Lori. It's been such a pleasure. I knew that I would love you and I really have enjoyed listening to you and, and thank you for sharing all these stories and uh, giving us insight into all of your wisdom and experience. It's been a total pleasure getting to talk to you. Thank you're you. welcome. So you're going to come into my, onto my channel. Yes. yes I okay. would love to, that would make me so happy. Let's get you scheduled up for a, a visit to my channel this fall. We can talk about some topics that interest you, but also in alignment with something that's going on in the sky that makes you happy that you're excited to talk about. And you do have a YouTube channel right now. You do, but you don't really use it a lot. I, I'm not a YouTuber. Yeah, I've used okay. uh, YouTube very, very sparingly for like actually just to have a place to link people to a video. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, no, I I do not have a YouTube. But uh, uh, just really quick, can you tell people about your upcoming class in like a couple of yeah. minutes? Yeah, yeah, very quickly. I'm I'm every year now. Well, twice a year I teach Sky Reader. This will be the fourth class coming up in the fall. It's, doors will open on the third week of September. I haven't opened the doors yet, but there's a wait list for early bird notice and early bird notice and um, 
getting in because I, I cap the class. I don't want 2,000 people in a class. So it, it has a, a, a cap on how many people can be in it. It's six weeks long and we go into how to be your own astrologer, time your best life. And it is certainly not a course in six weeks that will prof- make you a professional astrologer. It's a course that gives you enough fundamentals and some very easy timing tools that aren't even transits to use astrology to help navigate your own life. And that starts in September. And I don't know when this is airing for you. So either you'll go to my website, lunaticastrology.com or my YouTube, Lunatic Astrology, and you'll find all that information on the website or in the description box. All right. Check it out, everyone. Thank you so much, Lori. I wish you all the best and I will talk to you. What an incredible pleasure to finally meet you because I was stalking you before. So yay us. (laughs) Have a a wonderful day, Rachel. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye, love.